Uh, we are going to be in Nehemiah chapter 6 today, so if you have a Bible, jump over to Nehemiah chapter 6, and if you're joining us online, so glad you are joining us in the warmth of your bedroom or uh, living room, and hope you're drinking hot coffee, and uh, so if you have a Bible in your home, get to Nehemiah chapter 6, you can calm the kids down a little bit and get with us here this morning. I know several people have texted me along the way, they're like, we're going to be watching uh, from home, just icy roads and that sort of thing, um, and so that, that's where some of those folks are this morning, but Nehemiah chapter 6, let me read a little bit for us, pray, and then we will jump in. It says this, Now when Samballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set the doors or the gates, Samballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hekaferim in the valley of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in the same way and I answered them in the same way. In the same way, Samballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in hand. In it, it was written, it is reported among the nations and Gershem also says, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king, and you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I said to him, saying, No such things are as, as you have said. For you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking that our hands would drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have brought us to this place this morning. Thank you that you are at work in our lives, in the lives of our friends and our families, that God, you are working in this world. And so Lord, I pray that as we open your words, you would really open our hearts, that we would see you for who you are, that we would grow in our relationship with you. And and Lord, when we encounter attacks to us personally, that you would give us the perseverance to withstand the perseverance to overcome in every circumstance we find ourselves. And Lord, we can do that through the power of Jesus Christ. So Lord Jesus, I pray that you come, make us alive, enliven us to you, and guide our hearts. And ask this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you were ever to train for a marathon... Uh, I'm, I have not ever run a marathon, but if you're ever to train for a marathon, you know as a marathon uh, occurs, there's one moment that every veteran marathon runner will tell you about, and it's called hitting the wall. There's a moment in the race when, when you're training and when you're pushing hard that, that, that there comes a moment when your glycogen stores, your sugar stores, uh, get depleted so, uh, so low that it's difficult to continue. And so it's not just a physical barrier, but there's also a mental barrier. Because as you're running 26.2 miles, there comes moments along that journey that you're just like, and I just feel like walking, you know? I mean, mile 10, you're just like, you know, I, I would just off 
here, or mile 15, I want to walk some more, mile, mile 20, I, I think I would be better off not continuing along this journey. And it particularly hits later in the race. Mile 22, 23, that's when it typically hits most people. When their glycogen stores, their sugar stores go down extremely low and that the people there at that point in the race, they start having mental battles. So not just physical battles, but mental battles where they're going, I just don't want to keep going. But I'll tell you what, one of the, some of the most powerful moments you see are when people are encountering overwhelming obstacles, they continue to push forward. One of the most amazing marathons I ever saw was back in 1996. I was watching the U.S. Olympic trials and, and the race that was going on, training for the Olympics that were going to be in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm watching the marathon trials, and it was the first time I'd ever watched a race, like literally watched a race, especially for professional athletes. And as I'm watching these people run, there's mile after mile, and the best, the best in the world will run a marathon in a little over two hours. Two hours of running and running and running at a very fast pace, five-minute pace or better for that entire 26.2 miles. And, and as I'm watching this one particular race, there was a man named Bob Companion. He was a medical student training 100 miles a week. He was 29 years old, and he gets to the 22-mile mark. And I remember watching this race as they're going, and then he sees two guys ahead of him, and he starts charging after them, picking up the pace to catch these two men in this final stretch of the race, this final several miles of the race. You're like, that's the final stretch, like four or five miles? Yeah, well, in a marathon, yeah, that's the final stretch. And as he starts going faster, um, it's, he says in, a, in an interview that uh, he had drinking something that had made his stomach upset, and so he starts throwing up. And so he throws up, but doesn't stop. He just, blah, and then he just like keeps on charging after these guys ahead of him. And I'm like, I'm like, did you see that? That was insane. I'm just like, what just happened? And as he catches the, the second guy, he just does it again. Blah, and just, you know, then puke on the guy, which would have been a good strategy. But he throws up the <laughs> other direction and then keeps on charging, and you watch him over the last miles of the race, not slowing down, but speeding up, pushing his body further than he had ever pushed himself, and throwing up along the way. And as you watch that, even if you don't like marathons, you're like, all right, now that's impressive. And what's impressive about it is when you're encountering overwhelming obstacles, when you're encountering overwhelming obstacles, when you see someone overcome, that's impressive. That's powerful. And I tell you what, the people that are running hard after Jesus Christ, it's not the ones that have the easy road that most impress you. It's the ones that encounter severe obstacles, severe challenges, severe hits, that somehow, way, through the power of God, they're able to overcome. What is it that makes persevering Christians? What is it that enables Christians to persevere in their faith, even in the most challenging circumstances? That's what we're looking at this morning. We're looking at persevering faith, and particularly how to overcome personal attack. If you've been following us uh, in the study of Nehemiah, we've watched this man, Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer to the king. 
And he was a cupbearer to the king, which meant that he stood in the king's presence, but his heart broke for the things that broke God's heart. He heard that the, the walls of Jerusalem were torn down. And so he, he said, King, can I go and rebuild the walls? And God's good hand was upon Nehemiah. And so he left Susa and went to Jerusalem, an 800-mile journey, to start rebuilding the walls. And as we've watched Nehemiah over these past several chapters, we've watched him overcome obstacle after obstacle. And there's really two main enemies that have shown themselves to be against the work of God, against the rebuilding of the walls. And those two men are known as Sambalat and Tobiah. We first met them back in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 19, when, when Nehemiah first went to Jerusalem and said, hey, I'm going to start rebuilding the wall, and, and we need to do this. And, and they asked a, a, a slicing question. They said, what is it that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? They said, Artaxerxes back in Susa is over this region. Are you rebelling against the king by trying to rebuild the wall? And Nehemiah's like, no, no, he sent me on this mission. And in chapter 4, we see them kind of turn up the heat in their opposition. Billy preached on that a couple weeks ago where he talks about how, how these men, Sambald and Tobiah, are trying to discourage the workers, discourage the people that are part of this mission. And because they couldn't stop him by, by a simple statement early on, because they couldn't discourage the workers from continuing the threat, they decided to turn up the heat. And instead of attacking the people that are leading the rebuilding process, they, they try to go straight for the head. And they go straight after Nehemiah, and they levy personal attacks on Nehemiah. If we can't discourage the workers, we're going to take out the leader. And here's what's fascinating that you'll find in your Christian life. Oftentimes, what, what enemies will do is if they can't stop what they're doing, what you're doing, by discouraging the work around you, what will end up happening is they'll go straight for you. Charles Swindoll in his book, Hand Me Another Brick, talking about the, the story of Nehemiah, says this, It is true that if you are a leader, you spend your own time either on top or bottom. You seldom know what it's like in between. You're either the hero or the villain. You are respected or you are virtually hated. People in leadership must live on the yo-yo of public opinion, under the gun of verbal jabs, as well as on the crest of great admiration. He says, what ends up happening with most leaders in their Christian life is that they're in this yo-yo of public opinion. There's moments when they're the hero and celebrates the hero, and there's other moments when they're vilified as a, as a villain. And, and Nehemiah is right on the edge of that moment in his life. He's been doing great things. The, the wall was built up in, in most of its parts. It was almost done. And it seems strategic that when the work is almost finished, that the attacks get that much sharper. And we see four attacks that are levied against him in this chapter of chapter 6. We see distraction, discredit, deception, and, de and delusion of deluded people. And what's interesting about this chapter is that, is that it's not one attack that knocks Nehemiah off course. And oftentimes in the Christian life, that's true. It's not one person that says one thing that throws you off course. I've heard it described this way. It's death by paper cuts. It's 
it's little individual slams. It's paper cut statements. It's, it's not the one overwhelming rock that hits you. It's, it's those steady, unrelenting criticism and critique and, and people that don't understand, the people that are against you, or, or these comments that just go one after another. It's death by paper cuts that often takes us off course and makes us not persevere in life. So how does Nehemiah overcome the death by paper cuts? How does Nehemiah persevere in the midst of his opposition, in the midst of his own personal attack? Well, we're going to see it in this section. And let me tell you this. The same is going to be true in your life. If you genuinely want to follow Jesus Christ and not just be a passive Christian who happens to attend Sunday services or happens to have a Bible, if you want to be fierce on the mission of Jesus Christ, what it means is the further you go, the more, the more hits you're going to take. And how is it that we can be Christians that persevere in the midst of overwhelming opposition? We're going to see it play out in the life of Nehemiah in chapter 6. Now it begins this way, verse 1, chapter 6. Now when Sembalat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, and there was no breach left in it, although I had not put the doors on the gates yet, Sembalat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together in Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. The first challenge that Nehemiah faces in persevering is this, distraction. They're trying to distract him from the mission. They say, come visit us in the plain of Ono. Um, it's interesting, fascinating. Um, the plain of Ono is about 20 miles away from Jerusalem. It is a lush, beautiful valley. And, and Sabal and Tobiah are saying, hey, come over here. Come to the plain of Ono. And in English, when you read that, to the plain of Ono, Oh no, <laughs> I'm not going to go visit you. You're my enemy in the plain of, oh no, even if it looks pretty, I'm not going to go there. And he says, no, come on over here. And, and it's the place of, of Hakafarim. Now, to us, that doesn't mean anything. But Hakafarim in Hebrew means the place of young warriors, soldiers, or figuratively, fierce lions. They're like, come, this beautiful, lush valley of, oh no, where there's warriors and lions. It'll be great, Nehemiah. And Nehemiah's like, am I an idiot? No, I'm not going to go there. But so often in life, distractions that can seem obvious in hindsight are difficult to decipher when you're in the middle of the moment. Magicians play this game all the time. They know that if they can distract you, if they can get your, your focus over here, that they can do something else over here. Dennis Rodman, I watched um, the, the, uh, the Last Dance with Michael Jordan chasing, the, chasing their, t their six titles, and, and Dennis Rodman, a famous basketball player during that, uh, played for the Detroit Pistons, the bad boys. And their goal on the bad boy team was to get you so angry at the team that you became completely ineffective on the court. Their goal was to distract you and if I can distract you over here, then you'll never know what I'm doing over there. I'm going to pull you off mission with simple distractions. In the book, The Art of War, Sun Tzu says this, The whole secret lies in confusing the enemy so that he cannot fathom our real intent. If an enemy wants to get you off course, all he needs to do is lure you away. 
Andy Stanley in his book, Visioneering, says this, to accomplish the most important things, you must learn to say no to some really good things. More often than not, it is the good things that have the greatest potential to distract you from the best things. See, sometimes in life it can be difficult to discern, is this a distraction or is this the right opportunity? And what might be happening is that you're going right into the valley of oh no and not even realize it. In the book of James, it says, he says it this way, that each one is lured and enticed by his own desires. He says what ends up happening is that we're tempted. We can be brought off course. We can be distracted when we're lured and enticed by our own desires. And I love the imagery that James uses because he uses basically fishing imagery. He's saying there's a hook out there for you. And for some of you, the hook is like a worm. It's soft and squishy, and you're like, yes, I love the soft and squishy. And then for others of you, you're like, squishy? Like, that does it for you? And you're like, well, that, that doesn't work, but it's something shiny over here. And you're like, ooh, shiny. And then you go, you're, that's yours. So each one of us has our own things that are out there that distract us from the mission, that distract us from being on God's mission. And, and, and what Satan does is he tries to pull you over here so that you miss the real purpose of what God has you doing. But how does Nehemiah overcome the distraction? How does he overcome this? He says an interesting statement in verse 3. He says, I sent messengers saying, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it to come down to you? He says, why should I come down there? Because I'm doing a great work. Now, why could he say that? You wonder that? How many walls were being built in the ancient world? How many cities needed walls? I'll tell you what, a lot. A lot of walls are being built in the ancient world. A lot of walls are being built today just in culture and around your house. Your fence gets torn down. We're going to have snow coming. Your wall is going to fall and you're going to have to build a new fence. It's just going to happen. So sorry for you. It's going to happen. Walls fall. Walls need to be rebuilt. Why is it that Nehemiah said, I will not come down because I'm doing a great work? It's because when you're working for the Lord, every moment is shot through with meaning. When you're working for the Lord, you can ignore distractions because you're focused on what God has called you to do. So how did he overcome this distraction? He had a spiritual focus. I know what God has called me to do. And I know that this thing right here is not what God has called me to do. And so I can say no to that that thing, because I know what God has called me to do. And let me tell you what, one of the challenges that most Christians face, one of the reasons we get distracted and pulled off into sin is because we don't know what God has called us to do. And every opportunity seems good, but it's not the best. So what has God called you to do? What is the great work that God has put in front of you? If you're married, your great work is to love and work on your marriage with your spouse. That is a gift given by God. And so when you're lured and enticed by this person over here or that opportunity over there, you can say no because that thing will pull away from this greater thing. If you have kids, you have a responsibility 
to raise and love those kids in the Lord. And when, when more job opportunities come or more pulls of your time come, you can say no to a good because you know caring for your kids and raising them is better than whatever this opportunity might be. You can say no because this is a better yes. If you're in business, your job is a gift from God. Now, I understand how marriage and parenting can come in conflict with work at times. But Paul says in 1 Timothy, if you do not work your job, you've denied your faith and you're worse than an unbeliever. It's a pretty harsh statement. Part of the responsibility that we have is to work and, and provide for our families, provide for others that are in need. So work your job well. And are you following Jesus? The priorities in my life go like this. Jesus Family, job, ministry. Are you focusing on Jesus Christ? Are you focusing on your love and growth in Jesus Christ? Are you prioritizing your quiet time, your spiritual life with Jesus Christ? When you put first things first, secondary things will follow. But if you put secondary things first, you'll lose both first and second. So am I loving Jesus well? Am I loving my family well? Am I working my job well? He says, I won't be distracted with all of these things when I know what God has called me to do. Am I spiritually focused? But not only do we have distraction that he has to overcome, secondly, they go right after his character and they try to discredit him. Read me in verse 5, it says this, Now in the same way, Sembalat, for the fifth time, sent his servants to me with an open letter in hand. Previously, it was closed letters. It was an individual invite to come to the Valley of Ono. Now he sent an open letter. And the open letter, if you've probably seen on Twitter or whatever else, an open letter is for everyone to read. And the reason for an open letter is to make an open accusation. And in it, it's written, it's reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become king, and you have set up prophets to proclaim concerning Jerusalem, there's a king in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports. So now let us come and counsel together. Nehemiah won't be distracted, and so they turn up the heat. I'm going to try to discredit you, Sambal and Tobias say. We're going to start making slices at your reputation. We're going to challenge your motives. They're going to say, Nehemiah, the real reason you're here isn't to build a wall to help these people. The real reason you're here is because you want to be king. And this whole thing is all about you. This whole little journey, all of these visions, all these different things that you're pulling together, all these people, you're, you're just building your own little platform, man. This whole thing is about your agenda. They attack his reputation. What's fascinating is that it's the small hits that can take us down. Fred Mitchell um, once wrote to a young minister. He says this, It does not matter what happens to us, but our reaction to what happens to us is vital. You must expect more criticism, for this comes with responsibility. It causes us to walk humbly with God, to take such action as God desires. The longer you walk with Christ, 
the longer you try to live honorably, the more people will attack your credibility. Because if they can attack your credibility, they can remove your influence. If they can take you down, your credibility as a leader or as a person of Christ, they can dismiss everything else that you've said. And that's truly challenging. Criticism hurts. And it doesn't have to be valid. It doesn't even have to be real. It just has to be said. And if it's said, somehow that that venom becomes the story that everyone else believes. And it doesn't have to be real. So how do you overcome the criticism that is levied us, that, 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 that desire to say dishonest things that, that pulls you down? Well, Billy Graham was once asked this question. How do you respond to criticism? And a woman actually wrote a letter to him, and she writes this. Um, I know that I shouldn't get upset when people criticize me, but I just can't help it. Even when I know they're wrong, it still upsets me and sends me into this emotional tailspin. How do I learn to handle criticism? Billy Graham responded this way. He says, I doubt if anyone likes to be criticized, (laughs) particularly when they know it's not deserved. But the Bible condemns those who have tongues as sharp as serpents. He says, but criticism is a part of life. And the real question, as you say, is how do you deal with it? And I'm going to give you two suggestions. First, ask God to help you become less sensitive to what others say. Some of what they say may not even be intended as criticism as much as you take it. Secondly, don't focus on what others may think about you. Focus instead on what God thinks of you and rejoice in it. After all, when we commit our lives to Jesus Christ, we become God's dearly loved children. Find security and comfort in this great truth. I love that advice. I don't need to be so focused on the criticism. I need to be focused on the Lord. I don't need to be so focused on what every person in my junior high or high school says about me. I need to be focused on what the Lord says about me. And the process of that, to figure out what what, what does the God actually think about me, is you've got to read your Bible. Ephesians is a great place to start. Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about all the things that you've been given in Christ, your identity in Christ. But even along that journey to figure out what are my true motives, is this criticism that I'm receiving valid, one of the things I would encourage you to do is actually do some soul searching and ask yourself the question, am I being spiritually honest? Is this criticism true? Does Nehemiah really want to be king, or is he just fooling himself and others? I love David in this instance. In Psalm 193, David prays to God. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there's any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. One of the things that David does, which I think is beautiful, is, is when he's, he's standing before God, he says, God, I'm opening myself up to you. Is there anything, any thought that's, that's not aligned with your will? Is there, is there anything in my heart that is not of you? Is there anything in me that's pulling me off course from what you want me to do? And he says, search me, oh God. Hear me. 
and then lead me in the way everlasting. I got to believe that Nehemiah did some soul searching and says, is this actually true? And in verse 8, he could answer emphatically with spiritual honesty. He could be honest. I don't want to be king. That's not my goal here. In verse 8, he says, then I said to them, no such thing as you have said has been done, for you're inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands would drop for the work and it will not be done. But now God, strengthen my hand. See what he says? He says, everything you're saying, that's, that's an invention. That, that's, not, that's the furthest thing from my thought. I did some soul searching. I, I thought about it. No, that is not even true. And so God, strengthen my hand. How do we respond when people are discrediting us? We bring ourselves to the Lord. We ask, Lord, what are you, are you thinking of me? And then we can speak with honesty. What you're saying was not my intent. And he moved forward. He spoke with spiritual honesty. The third critique that was levied at him, or the third challenge, the third cut, was that of deception. Verse 10, it says, Now when I went into the house of Shema, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetbel, good names, good names, who was confined, confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God. Within the temple, let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But then I said, should such a man as I run away? And must man such as I? I cannot go into the temple and live. I will not go in. The third attack is a spiritual attack. A prophet comes to him. And this prophet comes to him and says, hey, here's what's happening. They're going to come. They're going to attack you by night. Why don't you go into the temple and just hide yourself? Now, for Nehemiah, he wasn't a priest. He wasn't in the right line, so he couldn't go into the temple and hide himself there. He was, he was actually having this conversation with someone that says, hey, let's go to church and have a conversation. And he's like, okay, I shouldn't just go in there. I can't go into the Holy of Holies. I'm not qualified to do that. In the Old Testament, you had to have certain qualifications to go into that space. And, and he's like, this person with this veiled spirituality is telling me to go to this place. And he says, that's not right. That's not real. But what's fascinating is that people can use a veiled spirituality to deceive us into buying in what they're saying. In fact, this happened in the life of David. David was in the cave of Adullam. He is sitting there in the back of the cave, and Saul comes in to use the bathroom. Saul is vulnerable. He had been chasing David. He had been trying to kill David. And this is Saul in his most vulnerable spot. And he walks into the cave and turns around and starts going to the bathroom. And, and all of his people with him, they're in the recess of the cave. They're like, now's the time when God said, do to your enemy what you want. And David at that moment, he's walking up to Saul to, to kill him so he can take the throne. And as he's about to kill him, he, he says, this isn't right. And he cuts off an edge of the garment and walks back. And the men are like, what are you doing? Go and kill him. That's why we're on the run. And he's like, no. And it says that he tore into his men saying, we're not going to do that. We're, we're not going to rise to power like this. But so often, in a veiled spirituality, God did this for you. We can be deceived 
into, what's, into following through what's, what's not true. And one of the things we need, and this is a very difficult piece, this is the hardest piece, to overcome deception, we need spiritual discernment. We need to know what God thinks about this situation. Sinclair Ferguson writes this, discernment is learning to think God's thoughts after him. Practically and spiritually, it means having a sense of how things look in God's eyes and seeing them in some measure to be uncovered and laid bare. He says we need spiritual discernment in life circumstances. We need to see how does God see this situation? And am I seeing this situation like God is seeing it? But here's, here's how he sees it. He says in verse 11, should I run away? I'm not going to be a coward. And what man such as I can go into the temple and live? He says, and, and I'm not qualified. I'm not of the right family to go into the temple. He says, I know my Bible, and so I know I'm not to run. And then he sees even further, verse 12, and I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sembalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and not act in the way of sin. And so they, they could not give me a bad name in order to taunt me. He says, I saw right through the situation. These men were hired by the enemy to come make me be captive, to do things that were sinful. I knew that it was a deceptive spirituality. And so how did he overcome the deception? He saw with the eyes of God, it was spiritual discernment. And as Christians, there are moments in life when it's difficult to determine the motives of the people that are talking with you. And what we need are spiritual eyes. We need to see the situation like God sees the situation. One of my favorite moments of this is in 2 Kings chapter 6, when Elisha is there with his servant. And as Elisha is there with his servant, they see this army of the enemy coming to attack him. And Elijah is sitting calm on top of the mountain. And his servant's freaking out. He's like, hey, we need to run. We need to do something. What are we going to do here? And Elisha prays, Lord, open his eyes. And God opened his eyes. He says, those are with us are more than with them. And he opened his eyes and he saw the hosts, the the hills full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elisha. See, Elijah could see beyond the surface. And oftentimes in life, what we need to overcome deception is spiritual discernment. And how do you get that? Well, we believe in a God who reveals himself. Through prayer, through devotion, through reading the word of God, he can make our spiritual eyes open. He can make us see, okay, well, what, is the, what are the real motives of these people? What's really going on? What's, what's really happening in this situation? And to walk wisely in that moment. And that's when, I'm, I'm sorry, Christianity gets a little bit weird. It gets a little bit odd. And you ask someone, ask the question, well, why don't you just do that? And you're just like, man, I just don't feel like God's leading me that direction. I don't think that's right in this moment to walk with spiritual eyes, to have spiritual discernment. So how does God speak? Clearly through his word and through his people. And so oftentimes when I'm encountering a challenging decision or a challenging situation where I'm not sure the right way to go, I will go to trusted Christian brothers and sisters and say, pray for me on this. 
Pray with me on this. Let's, let's see like God is seeing in this situation, and let's make the wise decision together. Let's use spiritual discernment as we go forward. The fourth attack that's levied at Nehemiah is what I've just called delusion. Jump down to verse 17. He says this, Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah letters from them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and the sons of Jehonan, and had taken the daughter of Meshulamah, the son of Berachim, his wife. I'll explain this all in a moment. Also, they spoke of his good deeds to my presence and reported my words to him and to biasent letters to make me afraid. What's fascinating is the people of Judah are supposed to be living in this region where Nehemiah is rebuilding. They're supposed to be Jewish people that are loyal to the Jewish cause. And the Jewish people are defending Tobiah, this enemy. They're defending Tobiah to Nehemiah. They're supposed to be insiders, but they're acting like outsiders. They're delusional. They don't see that these are the enemies of God, that they're trying to stop the work of God. They're delusional, and, and they keep on talking to Nehemiah. They're like, hey, Tobiah's not so bad. He's a good guy, you know? Like, yeah, he's done a couple things. Like, I don't know, he's trying to kill you, but, but hey, he's genuinely like an all right guy. And so constantly these other people are saying, hey, defending this enemy of yours, they're delusional. They're not seeing the truth. And Nehemiah day after day has to deal with these people They're saying, oh, come on, that person's not so bad. He's not trying to kill you, although he is. And so how do you overcome the delusion of people? Well, the final quality that we see in Nehemiah is this, spiritual determination. Verse 15, so the wall was finished on the 25th day in the month of Eloel, in, the 52, in 52 days. And when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. You know how you overcome the critics, overcome the people that are speaking against you? Perseverance. Andy Stanley says it this way, the best way to silence your critics is to see your vision to completion. William Carey, great missionary, said this, if anything can be said of me, it would be this, I can plod, I can persevere in any definite pursuit, to this I owe everything. I will simply be faithful, I will be determined, and let me, let me just tell you this, In the Christian life, what I've discovered is what's needed more than great moments. It's daily decisions of faithfulness. It's being faithful over the long haul. It's persevering even when it's challenging. It's it's doing the right thing even though it can be unpopular or the opposition comes. It's simply persevering in the present. That is the most significant gift you can give to people. And let me tell you what, one of the things I love doing is sitting with saints that have been faithful for decades. 
One inspiring moment happened with me uh, many, many years ago. We were doing um, a mission trip in Houston, and I met a, a man, a pastor, who was helping revitalize churches, and he'd been doing it for decades. His name was Harvey Kneisel. And he was helping revitalize this other church. He was 77 years old, had been pulled out of retirement for like the 80th time, and, and they brought him back to help revitalize this church community. And so he knew this church needed a youth ministry. And so someone's got to play with these kids. And so he starts running around playing with the kids. And by the time I got there with my group helping to, to do this mission project, um, he said, yeah, I can't play with the kids anymore. Um, I was throwing the football, running around, and I tore my hamstring off the bone. I was like, Harvey, at 77, man, I think you, you've, you've done enough, right? But he's like, yeah, the kids need Jesus, though. And so I wanted to do something. So finally, I hired another youth pastor. Now he's you know, young, and he's going to run around with them. But I looked at this man who said, I'm going to be faithful to the Lord no matter where he calls me all the way to the end. Do you know saints of old like that? Let me tell you what. We have some men and women in this congregation who are those types of quality saints, And one of the best gifts you can give yourself, um, young people in this room, is to go meet some people with gray hair or no hair. Because those men and women have been faithful to the Lord over the long haul. And you can learn something about their perseverance. You can learn something about that overcoming faith that allows them to have determination, allows them to continue even when it's difficult. And the reason they have gray hairs and are sitting in this church today is because they've been faithful over a long haul. And that is a blessing for our church body. And they are a blessing to me and they're a blessing to you because they know what it looks like to persevere with the Lord over the long haul. Vance Havner says this, The hardest part of the journey is neither the start nor the finish, but the middle mile. This is where the enthusiasm of a new undertaking that buoys you at the beginning, and there's thrill of reaching the goal that carries you down the home stretch. But the middle mile, when you are a long way from the start and home is still distant, that tests the mettle of the traveler. Many of you are in the middle mile of your Christian faith. There's a lot more ahead. There's a lot that's been behind. And what we all need is persevering, persevering faith. And the reason we can persevere is not because we have the internal fortitude. It's because we have a Savior, Jesus Christ. I encourage you, as you're going to be at home for the next several days, snowed in, it'll be amazing. (sighs) Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Go to Hebrews chapter 12, and I want you to read about Jesus Christ. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning his shame. And he ran all the way to the end of his race. In Hebrews 12, it says, look, let's throw off every sin, everything that so easily entangles, and run the race set before us, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning his shame. The reason we run is because the race has been run by Jesus Christ, and we're just following in his steps. The reason we run is because we have his faithfulness, not just as a model, but is faithful to us. 
No matter what challenge you're facing in life, no matter what paper cut you're facing, Jesus Christ has suffered it as well. As a faithful high priest that comes alongside and says, yeah, I know. I know this part of the journey is hard. Come on, let's keep going. I know this part is difficult. Come on. I know that criticism stings. Come on. I know that that veiled spirituality is pulling you off course. Now, come on, come on back. Come on back. And we follow hard after Jesus Christ. As we follow hard after Jesus Christ, we have perseverance in the present. So I'll give you a couple applications of the four attacks Distraction, discredit, deception, delusion. Which one's getting you? Why don't you take a moment right now and say, ask the question of distraction, discredit, deception, delusion. Which attack are you facing right now? I know the four responses that Nehemiah had that we need to have a spiritual focus, a spiritual honesty spiritual discernment or spiritual determination what is God pointing his finger on in your life that's where I need to work why don't you take a moment on your phone or on a piece of paper near you say Lord this this is what I need to work on this week this is the one I need to work on this week let's pray Lord thank you so much That Jesus, you accept us exactly where we are, but you do not leave us where we are. And Lord, thank you that you have overcome. You have overcome the overwhelming opposition. And Lord, not only have you overcome, you've called us to overcome alongside of you, with you. And Lord, many of us are suffering many challenges, many personal attacks that have been levied against us. And for many of us, the persevering in the Christian life can feel like enduring through a lot, a lot of paper cuts. So Lord, I pray that you would give us perseverance, not because of our internal willpower, but with a focus on you, Jesus Christ. And Lord, that you would give us the power to persevere, and that that would be a great testimony so if there's some some of us here that are struggling in this moment, I pray that we would reach out to us or reach out to one of the spiritual saints that are right here in this room. Lord, help us to be a persevering people that you might build something great for your glory and our good. It's in your name we pray. Amen.